It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. If we are smart to keep that to the level where we make the economy, the world economy, more resilient and not in, drag the world into a place where we will be all poorer and we would be less secure. My fear is that we are sleepwalking into this world. But hey, here is Davos. Wake up! Do the right thing. Hello, Stephanomics here, and this week we have an action-packed episode from the World Economic Forum in Davos, where the Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Gorgieva, has been imploring the world's movers and shakers to resist the forces of fragmentation, stop sleepwalking to a poorer, more divided world. As a Bulgarian who grew up in the Soviet bloc, she also had some sombering words on the West treatment of Russia after the Soviet Union collapsed. We'll get to that later. You will also hear why everyone is excited about India and why businesses can afford to give all of their employees a living wage without running the risk of triggering inflation. Well, I told you it was action-packed. But first, a taste of a high-powered panel I moderated here, naturally, on the subject of fiscal policy, also known as what governments choose to do with taxes and spending. The panellists you're going to hear are Gorgievas number two at the IMF, the economist Gita Gopinath, the European Commissioner for the Economy, Paolo Gentiloni, and the former Governor of the Indian Central Bank and celebrated economist who's now a professor at Chicago, Raghuram Rajan. When I was introducing the panel, I pointed out that when it came to fiscal policy, governments, at least until recently, had had two luxuries. First, for many years, they'd been able to borrow more while spending less on debt interest. Debt stocks in many developed economies have roughly doubled since the global financial crisis, but thanks to falling interest rates, the total cost of servicing that debt had actually gone down. The second great advantage they've enjoyed was that in responding to crises, there hadn't been a big conflict between fiscal policy and monetary policy. When the economy had a problem, both monetary and fiscal policy pointed in the direction of being looser. But in the past year, both of those luxuries have been cruelly snatched away as inflation has hammered households but also pushed central banks to raise interest rates. So I started by asking Gita Gopinath how governments were coping with this difficult new era. You have an inflation problem you have to deal with but you're still hit with shocks like food shocks and energy shocks that require fiscal policies to step up. And that's what's making the current conjuncture uh, particularly difficult. Um, what's important to keep in mind, though, is inflation has helped a little bit with, on the debt story. So if you look at uh, 
what happened to public sector debt globally in 2020, it went up to around 99% of, of GDP. Uh, and now it's uh, come down to around 91% of GDP. Uh, and that's because of a combination of the recovery, but also because of the uh, inflation, inflating away some of that debt. Now at 91%, it's still around eight percentage points higher than it, what, what it was pre-pandemic. So there is still a debt problem uh, that countries have to deal with. But inflation and the recovery has, has reduced uh, the, the size of that increase uh, in the debt. In terms of what countries need to do to manage this difficult trade-off right now, I would say fiscal policy has to uh, accomplish three things, which is one, it should be consistent with bringing inflation down, which means at the minimum, it should not be expansionary uh, or at the overall level. The second thing that fiscal policy should keep in mind is indeed to make sure that you are protecting the most vulnerable and they need to, to do that. And when it comes to food and energy, these are very important fundamental essentials for, for uh, households. You need to provide support for that. Uh, and the last thing is it's absolutely essential at this time to have a sound uh, and communicate a sound medium-term fiscal framework with clarity on bringing down debt over time and, and building up buffers in the medium term. Commissioner Gentiloni, is this going to be the toughest year for European governments? Uh, well, we had a lot of tough, toughest years. <laughs> it's always going to be I tougher think, next year. I think we had a three or four year stress test for, for our economies. On the COVID crisis, it was a love affair between monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, now, of course, the situation is completely different. So the, the challenge now, in my view, are mainly two, if we want to have this good coordination between monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, first, how we are able to avoid that the expenditure and the measures to address the energy crisis uh, remain universal and uh, time unlimited measures. Just to make you an example, we spent at the EU level uh, in 2022 1.3% of our budget on uh, energy prices related measures. If you look to the draft budgetary plan for 2023, <coughs> this 1.3 goes down to 1%. But this decrease is based on the assumption that you will gradually uh, phase out these measures, uh, limit them, uh, go to more targeted measures. If this doesn't happen, if we continue the measures that we have in place, the overall burden will be 2%. So we will go from 1.3 in 22, not decreasing to 1%, but increasing to 2%. So this is our first issue. And we discussed, we discussed also um, with finance ministers. It is not easy to phase out these measures, of course, from a social point of view. But if you keep them in place for a too long time, when you will phase out, you could have a spike again in inflation. So we have to phase out then make them more targeted. And this is a political challenge. Second challenge is that we need to keep a good level of uh, 
public investments in strategic areas. And this is what, for me, is very encouraging, looking to the budget that we have for 2023, is that public investment is not decreasing. It is increasing. It is exactly the opposite of what happened after the financial crisis, when we had five or six years of continuously decreasing public investments. Because we need the other component of this difficult situation is that, yes, we have inflation. Yes, we have to support the vulnerables. But we have also to continue to support our transition investments. Raghuram just at the most sort of basic level, the inflation has made it a little bit easier to see debt stocks fall in nominal terms. But of course, again, completely basic, the cost of borrowing has gone up. How is this, how do you think fiscal policymakers should be thinking about fiscal policy as a tool, given these two things? Absolutely. The size of the debt has gone up <laughs> tremendously over the last few years. And that's actually uh, an interesting issue, which is why has fiscal discipline broken down? And so one argument is, oh, we've had all these extraordinary crises, and that is true. But we've had three once-in-a-lifetime crises in the last 20 years, right? The global financial crisis, we've had the, the pandemic, and now, of course, the consequences <coughs> of the war. Part of the problem that's going on is clearly there is a fractured political consensus in many industrial countries. I mean, that is part of the reason the U.S. overspent. Every constituency got a share of the spending, simply because they couldn't make choices. So forget targeted spending. It's universal plus in the sense that what you had was banks, which should have suffered losses during the <coughs> pandemic, didn't suffer any losses. Why? Because you had the Paycheck Protection Program, which went to the small and medium firms correctly, but then it went out through the back door directly to the banks to repay the loans. So in some sense, we've bailed out everybody, right? And that is the problem. Spending today is highly untargeted, including the energy spending that is, uh, the, the, the spending on power that is happening in, in Europe. How do we bring it back sort of under control? I think Mr. Gentiloni uh, uh, expressed a, a concern here. Now, what does that mean for the longer term? It means that fiscal and monetary will remain more in conflict rather than coordination going forward. Central banks are clearly determined to bring inflation down, but with spending still high, plus the prospect of spending not becoming more targeted over time does imply that inflationary expectations, inflationary consequences will be higher for longer. Last point uh, I will make, you know, there's a lot of you know, need for green investment. We uh, heard again that, uh, uh, you know, countries need to do more of it. The real question is who's going to bear the burden of green investment? The more you focus on incentive structures given by the government, subsidies here, subsidies there, uh, what that does is put the burden on the public sector balance sheet. The more you focus on regulation, you know, carbon tax this, or, or emission controls and so on, the more it comes on the private sector. Right now, it seems, certainly in the US, the consensus is it's too hard to put it on the private sector. It goes on the public sector balance sheet. We just saw the Inflation Reduction Act full of incentives of one kind or the other. So I, I think this is yet another place where fiscal needs to think very hard, given the breakdown in consensus, given the fracture 
are we going to take the easy route and not impose some of the costs of the transition on the private sector, take it all on the public sector balance sheet, which means the public sector balance sheet has yet more burdens going forward, which means yet more premia in unexpected places. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. So I'm delighted now uh, to be here in Davos with Nandan Nilakani, who's the co-founder and chairman of the Indian IT giant Infosys Technologies. Um, here at Davos at the World Economic Forum, there's been so much negativity about the world for very good reason. But I have to say, I've noticed there's a big exception whenever anyone talks about India. Everyone seems to think India is on the up. Are they right? Well, I'm personally very bullish on India, Stephanie, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, India is the only young country in an aging world, and therefore it's going to be the source of talent around the world from in many, many professions, and that's going to have a huge economic impact. India is also uh, having showing good growth. It's probably going to grow faster than most countries in the coming years, and uh, it's also stable politically. It has great entrepreneurs. Uh, it has a very thriving startup ecosystem. Now we have 90,000 startups in India. And of course, India's digital record of both exports as well as its own infrastructure has been very good. So yes, I think the stars are all aligned for India at the moment. <laughs> and we also, we had this week, we had this news about China's population shrinking. I mean, the flip side of that is it seems very likely that India is now the most populous country in the world. How does that feel? Well, it, 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 it may, I'm, I'm sure it's, I'm not sure, that, maybe it is the popular, but more than that is about the proportion of young people. You know, I think we all know about the demographic dividend when there's a lot of young people and less uh, babies and less old people, then countries have economic growth. So India is at that sweet spot of demographics. And therefore, if it does everything right, it can grow at five, six percent a year for for many years. And, you know, compounded growth has its value. So I think that's why people are bullish. In general, I also feel that Indians are more optimistic and confident about the future. And that adds to the energy in the country. Is it possible that India will get old before it gets rich? Well, that's always a risk uh, of a developing country. But I think, uh, I think if... I think in the next 15-20 years, if, if India is able to grow at a sustained pace of 5-6%, I mean, the compounding of that will lead to per capita incomes rising from you know $3,000 to $15,000 in the next 25 years. And that, that's, that's much more than middle-income country. One of the big debates, and we talk about it a lot on Stephanomics, is uh, the shift in the global economy changing nature of globalization. I don't tend to think of it as deglobalization, but certainly businesses around the world thinking about their supply chains, thinking mm -hmm. about fundamentally about the relationship with China. Yeah. Especially in the IT world. Sure. So how how are you thinking about that? Well I think once again I think some of the trends in globalization and geopolitics is favoring India. 
First is the China plus one strategy for many manufacturing companies because in the last 20 years they've you know sort of highly concentrated their manufacturing in China and they've seen the implication of that with zero COVID and so on. So they are all actively looking at options. And India is now emerging as a country of manufacturing. So that's that's one thing that's favoring India. And then the good thing is that the IT business is going to grow, uh, continue to grow. It's, you know, the IT business, just to give a sense of the speed and scale, it took a hundred, it took 30 years for the Indian IT industry to reach $100 billion of revenue. It took 10 years to go from 100 billion to 200 billion. And it will take three years to go from 200 billion to 300 billion. So there's a sort of a change of uh, pace. And and increasingly uh, with the pandemic and the realization that digital technology was central to the world, I think a lot of the action will be in India. Do you think India, uh, I don't mean this, it sounds patronizing, I don't mean it patronizing, but do you think India is ready for the geopolitical implications of being one of the big, fastest growing economies, most important economies in the world. You had India's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has involved imports of oil, Russian oil, I think, trebling in no, the last but, but year. But from nothing. You know, from I, think, nothing. I, I think we should... The fact of the matter is European import of oil is much, much higher and gas is much higher than India has ever done. So I think India has hardly been an early importer of... Before this, there was no import of it. Russian oil into India. But I think the point is that India is, I think, turning out to be a very strategic uh, com- country in the world. Its growing markets is going to attract uh, a lot of companies. Its role in digital is going to be huge. Uh, India is, this year is the host of the G20. So Prime Minister Modi and uh, other ministers are working on making the next uh, 12 months a uh, very hospitable environment for the G20 to come and visit. So I think you know, it's, it's all about, you know, uh, figuring out how to get there. But I think, by and large, I think it's going well. The other thing I was going to ask you that's very striking, certainly to all of my colleagues in India, is the fact that uh, Adani and Ambani are buying pretty much every asset uh, in sight in India. Are we? Is there a risk that India is going to become a sort of two-company country? No, I think India's farm has a huge depth of companies. I mean... Uh, if you look at uh, the financial sector, you know, you have great companies like ICICI and HDFC. Uh, if you look at the, uh, you have the Tata Group, you have uh, Infosys and Wipro and many of the tech companies. The, the India's pharma industry is world class. So I think India actually has a very diversified uh, business space. And I think, you know, I think uh, the, the, the investments in uh, things like climate technology, which... Uh, they are doing is going to be very influential because they are really going to bring world-class entrepreneurship to bring energy costs low, make green hydrogen and all. So I think everybody is doing their job in their own way. (laughs) And the one thing that someone said to me straight after the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and of course there's been lots of debate about whether that has accelerated the transition to zero carbon globally or actually retarded it because everyone has been immediately reopening their power, the coal-fired power plants and other things. But one um, expert in this field said to me that he had hoped that India's, a lot of India's coal might stay in the ground, and now he thought that was not going to happen. Well, no, I think we should, we should distinguish the short term from the long term. I think the, the, the Ukraine crisis and, and the whole Russian gas thing 
has demonstrated the you know dependence of Europe, for example, on Russian gas, and many countries are going in Europe are going back to coal and nuclear and so on. So that I think is a short-term reaction to energy security. But I definitely see that the fundamental shift to renewables is now reaching scale. I mean, you know, the other day I was in Abu Dhabi and they were talking about building 100 gigawatts of solar power. So they, because they want to prepare for the future. I was talking to some people from Denmark and they were talking about the fact there's going to be 150 gigawatts of offshore wind in the next seven years. In India, we have, you know, large entrepreneurs talking about going to very low cost green hydrogen. So I do believe now I see actually scale investments in renewable and definitely some of them have been triggered by the, uh, the crisis. But India has, ins- at COP and elsewhere, India has insisted on its right to, f- to use its coal to fire its economic development. As no, we see, discussed. I, look, it has that right, but do you think it should exercise no, that no, right? No, no, no. I, th- I think, I mean, India has made a huge commitment to solar. Uh, solar is going to be huge. Uh, and uh, the solar mission in India is, is a massive mission. India is making a huge uh, uh, commitment to green hydrogen. India is making a huge con- con- uh, commitment to EVs. Uh, I don't know they know, but the fastest growing cars today in India are EVs or two-wheelers. And they are transitioning much faster than we think. So I think it's doing all that. But at the same time, you know, you have to deliver development to people. It's I mean, the same thing. Why, why are they re- restarting coal plants in, in Europe? Same reason, right? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm delighted I managed to grab in the hallways Dr. Neela Richardson, who's chief economist of the payroll and human capital management company ADP. Um, I think that ADP, you also produced the Main Street Macro blog, is that right? That's right, Mm. that's right. Right up our street. Um, So you're here in Davos. And I saw you were speaking on a panel here about the living wage and you have some access at ADP to some fantastic data. We love big data uh, on Stephanomics. So have you done some research on, on the living wage and what were, you, what were you saying on the panel? Well, we track wages very closely at ADP, and I do as an economist, because we know that inflation has morphed over its lifespan over the last three years. It started in the goods sector. It's now very present in the service sector in the form of wages. And in all of that, people get lost in it because there is the sense that since wage growth has been so robust, that wages of workers are actually in the driver's seat. They're not. That is a myth that unravels when you look at real wages, which globally has declined uh, by uh, many global researchers' viewpoints uh, for the first time in decades. It's a real problem. But this problem of living wages started before the pandemic. There is a sense that market wages, the wages that companies pay and even governments pay, don't always keep track with necessities, housing, 
food, transportation costs, clothing, education. For many workers, they're not making the bare minimum to have a decent standard of living. And enter the living wage panel. It's always important because it's a perpetual problem for the world, but it's even worse in a context of high inflation. And I think that is something we forget when we see these high numbers uh, that looking through <laughs> looking through the nominal um, to see the real governments all around the world are facing this trade-off, right? That they, in theory, do want to help households, potential voters, um, but they don't want to set off a wage price spiral. So how do you see the living wage as part of that argument? First of all, it's demystifying the fact that if you raise wages for a, a small portion of your workforce, uh, that you are going to set off a spiral. I think that is a myth that we need to test. Um, secondly, it's- When you say a small portion, you mean those at the lower end? Right. So if you look at ADP data, we pay over 25 million workers in the United States. Only 3.4% of those workers make at or below the minimum wage. So there is room to, and states are doing this, cities are doing this, some companies are doing this, to increase the minimum bar for pay without stoking an increase in overall uh, uh, wage gains. And so we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But also there's there is a benefit to companies to providing fair living wages, and that is productivity. Workers that are paid fairly are more productive. And if you look at globally at labor force productivity, it's been on the decline over the past decade. So here, here's the great thing about raising wages. Not only do you fit, provide a fair and living wage, you can also help your company's bottom line by having a more productive workforce. When you think about the cost of living and food insecurity, is the living wage debate different when you think about uh, low-income countries where there'll be a higher number of workers in that vulnerable category? It is. It is more felt in uh, developing countries, but we're here at Davos, and the <laughs> point of this panel is to elicit discussion from global decision makers who actually can impact from their perch. Maybe it's in an advanced country in New York City or in Munich, but from their perch, they can affect the lives of workers around the world. Um, and so that's what I hope that we draw out in the panel, the benefits to multinational countries of paying a living wage everywhere they do business. And finally, I mean, there's a lot of talk here, and certainly we on Stephanomics have talked about how some of the main drivers of globalization, of, of global capitalism over the last few decades seem to be going into reverse, particularly the sort of consistent period of low energy costs, transportation costs, calm geopolitics. And of course, low wage peace was a big element of that. Do you think that wages, that, that, that labor is going to be a more expensive input for businesses in the years to come? And where does that leave workers? Is it a great new time for workers coming down the track? In terms of the U.S. and Europe, labor shortages will persist, especially here in the U.S. The expectation is that the next decade of employment growth will be half of the previous decade. And uh, the mirror the image of that is Europe. So labor shortages will continue. That means wage pressures will still be there. And wages, I don't think, will fall uh, 
in terms of growth low enough to be consistent with 2% target inflation. So there is going to be a new world of higher inflation and more robust wages. Where does that leave the worker? It's really a race against time. Will inflation moderate enough and wages stay solid enough that, they, that workers actually benefit from lower inflation? We don't know yet. Globally, they haven't. And for many low-income workers, they haven't. Their wages haven't kept up with inflation. So the hope for the worker is the same for the hope for the global growth. You need to see inflation moderate. At the same time, we need that productivity investment in human capital that keeps wages growing for the right reasons. So, so I had a, wrote a piece for Business Week looking through the beginning of the year, and I was... Uh, that was my end point that, you know, if getting, if inflation is under control in the next year and a half, everything gets easier, everything we might have wanted to achieve. Neela Richardson, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I promised you a last word from Kristalina Gorgieva, Managing Director of the IMF. What you heard at the very start of the show was some of her opening comment on a panel I didn't moderate, entitled Keeping the Lights On Amid Geopolitical Fracture. That's a fairly typical title for a panel round here. And there was some interesting discussion, but what really stuck with me was the final word which the MD insisted on contributing right at the end, a message based on her personal history, it seemed, right from the heart. If you look at 22, the biggest, uh, single biggest factor affecting the world economy was this uh, senseless war. What I know about uh, Russia is that um, uh, one of the um, uh, pitfalls of the last decades was um, the fact that there wasn't more concerted effort to integrate the Russian society, the Russian people, within the world community I was country director for Russia based in Moscow in the best days uh, when uh, Russia was reforming and there was G8, remember these days? <laughs> and at that time, when you ask the Russian people who they are, how they define themselves, the majority would say Europeans. Even the Russians that live in the Asian part of Russia. When you ask the Russian people today, they say we are different. We are a different civilization. We are different from, uh, from the rest of the world. So if I draw one lesson, is to remember that, yes, policies are defined in the high corridors of power. But when a population of a country subscribes to policies that are detrimental to their own interests, there is something for the world to reflect on and perhaps think about ways in which we can do more people-to-people -people exchange. In this uh, horrible thing Russia has done, there is a bit of kind of vilifying all Russians. We throw them all in that pot. And we have to be careful about it. There are so many uh, wonderful, smart uh, Russian people that don't agree with these policies. Are there sp Russian speakers in the audience? Anybody? Yeah. There is a very famous Russian song, and when the war started, it spiked into my, my mind, uh, that is about Russia not wanting the Second World War. And the song is Do the Russians want a war? 
And the whole notion of the, of the song is, no, they don't. What happened? Why did it happen? And how we can put an end uh, to it? Uh, I want to leave us with this uh, uh, notion that, that even the 100 years war ended where? At the negotiating table. The sooner we define a space, as everybody here said, for this horrible war to end, the better for everyone. And of course, great news for the world economy. <laughs> well, thank you. Хотят ли русские войны? Спросите вы у тишины. Над ширью пашины полей и уберёсы тополей. That is it for this action-packed Davos compendium. We'll be back for our final episode of the season next week. Boo-hoo. In the meantime, please rate us wherever you get this podcast and check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. This episode was produced by Yang Yang, Summer Sadi, and Magnus Henriksen. With special thanks to the World Economic Forum, Gita Gopinath, Raghuram Rajan, Paolo Gentiloni, Nanda Nilakani, Neela Richardson, and Kristalina Gorgieva. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.